Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Kari Hong, is an assistant professor at the Boston College of Law and an expert on U.S. asylum policy and law. And as you can imagine, we have an extended conversation about the tragedy that is unfolding at the southern U.S. border right now, where the Trump administration has mandated the separation of migrant children from their parents. And this is done ostensibly to deter parents from claiming asylum and to expedite their removal from the United States. This is inhumane, it is barbaric, and as Kerry Hong explains, not in compliance with both the laws and traditions around seeking asylum in the United States. She does a good job of putting this new family separation policy in the context and history of how the United States has typically handled claims of asylum. And a little more than halfway through this conversation, we get to what I think is the heart of the matter, that separating children from their parents at the border is a policy designed to force parents to enter a guilty plea to a misdemeanor offense, which therefore cuts off their ability to claim asylum in the United States. So I know it's somewhat unusual for me to post a second episode this early in the week, but you know, this is like a national emergency. And I wanted to talk to an expert on asylum seeker law and asylum seeker policy in order to understand just how much of an aberration uh, from the traditional laws and the traditional way of doing things that this new policy of family separation is. And I think Kari Hong does a good job of explaining the Kafka-esque trap into which these vulnerable migrants are thrown. And so here is my conversation with Kari Hong of Boston College Law School. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. How much of an aberration is this policy of family separation at the border we're seeing to the more conventional or more traditional way that the United States has approached claims of, of asylum seekers? So that's a, a complicated question. I think there are many ways um, to look at what is the aberration. If we go back before 1996, this is unrecognizable in that in, in 1980, there were 30 people in immigration detention, 30 total people, and they had already gone through the process of having been deported. Today, there are 400,000 people in detention. So the fact that we detained anyone at the border is new when we're talking about how asylum seekers used to be processed. 
1996 is an important starting point. 1996, there was a law. Um, it was, it was uh, passed in uh, August of an election year. Bill Clinton signed it. Uh, it's called the Illegal uh, Immigration Reform and uh, Illegal Immigrant and, and uh, uh, Immigrant Responsibility Act, or IRA IRA. What that did was transform how we process people at the border and how we process asylum seekers. Uh, what happened in that law is that for the first time, we created something called expedited removal. And that gives uh, an officer at the border the authority and the power to judge whether someone has a credible fear, whether they are in harm's way or not. And this is significant because Border Patrol officers, when they are charged with law enforcement, none of them are trained in what the current Supreme Court law is. There are 11 different federal circuits. None of them are trained in what the current um, different circuits are regarding whether someone's eligible for or not. No, no one's trained in current country conditions. And there was a report in 2016 that showed that the Border Patrol officers were making a lot of mistakes. They denied someone um, who was claiming uh, asylum from, from China, who was a, a Christian refugee who said that, that she had been persecuted in China because he said, because he asked whether he went, whether she went to church. And she said no. But the problem is it's, Christianity is so persecuted that there are yeah. no churches in China. Right, right. Of course so, you don't go to church. That's like the whole point. <laughs> so, so, so uh, but she was turned away and she was not allowed to enter our country. So, so another person it's these individual, you have individual border patrol officers who since 1996 are the ones who initially adjudicate claims of asylum. Correct. And, and so even though, as you can imagine, there are tons of mistakes with that, even by the numbers mentioned by Jeff Sessions in his August, uh, 2017 speech, 88% of the people who appear at the border pass that initial screening with the some officer. And for that, they simply have to say they are afraid or say that they are intending to apply for asylum. And then the officer has to let them into the country. So that part was created in 1996. The use of detention married with the 1990, with, with expedited removal started under Obama. And it started in response to the Central American surge, surge in 2013, 2014. And there, I think people are rightfully criticizing President Obama because his solution to having people at the border was to build detention centers. And he built detention centers in the desert, away from cities, and away from lawyers. So people coming in, whether they had a credible fear, would then be placed in a detention center, and then an asylum officer would meet with them to determine whether they qualified for asylum or not. Now, something to keep in mind is that while they were in detention, getting that credible fear interview, um, uh, they didn't have access to lawyers. They didn't even know how to find a lawyer, and the lawyers were hours and hours away. There is, there is a wonderful lawyer named Stephen Manning who helped crowdsource a core of volunteer immigration lawyers who appeared all over the United States who came to these detention centers. When a lawyer was involved with that initial screening, the removal rates were reversed at 99%. Hmm. So again, it shows that uh, there's a larger problem here is that a lot of people who have a cognizable claim are being wrongfully denied through this expedited removal and detention process. Seems like the the sort of the system is sort of stacked up against the asylum seeker up to the point that you're describing. Yes, yes, 
And I mean, it, it and and also, I think something to be aware of is that for 20 years there have been systematic ways that both administ- all administrations, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, um, and now the Trump administration, they're very much aggressive. They're trying to, and and George Bush's administration um, have been trying to make it harder for people to apply for asylum. In uh, uh, George Bush uh, signed a law called the Real ID Act that said that. Any inconsistency that a person provides at the um, uh, is a basis to deny them asylum. So I had a client, a woman who uh, was a victim of domestic violence, and the judge agreed that it went on for 20 years. It was brutal. She was left for dead. Um, there were no uh, uh, domestic violence shelters in the country where she was from, and he heard her testimony over three hours and agreed everything single thing that she said was legitimate and he believed her and she was in danger. He said, however, under real ID, because she gave her false name at the border Hmm. and the false country at the border because she's afraid of deportation, he did not believe her and denied her claim. Hmm. Now, that never happened before 2015, before the standard was if lies go to the heart of the asylum claim. So if you're applying for political asylum, then it turns out that you said that you're gay or it's, or, or actually it's based on your religion, that goes to the heart of your asylum claim. But these, these inconsistencies that are either understandable or immaterial um, or even mistakes by, by the judge themselves, now can be the basis for for um, keeping someone out of the country. So, so um, sort of fast forward to to uh, these last few weeks at the southern U.S. border. What sort of changed uh, with these sort of with with the directive issued by the Trump administration uh, from what it was prior to the issuance of that directive? So the two significant changes are that all children are forcibly taken away um, from their parents immediately. That's one significant change. And and uh, prior to that, as these asylum claims were adjudicated, the families could stay together in these detention centers? No. In in 2013, so five years ago, 92% of all asylum seekers were never in detention, families or children. Okay. So so even detaining these people is new. A new policy, and then um, there's still there's. So there's what would have been sort of so so maybe the best way to to explain this is what would have been sort of the process of a family applying, uh, say like a Guatemalan or Honduran family at the southern U.S. border applying for asylum prior to the imposition of of these new uh, directives. I mean, in 1996, no, like, like, or how far back? Like a year ago, two years ago, a, a year ago before Trump. So before Trump, they would appear. Um, and and maybe they would be detained, but they would if they'd have children, they would be released um, immediately. They would get a hearing date. If, if if first of all, they would get that initial screening by by the border patrol person, and then if they pass, they would have a, they would stay in detention until uh, then an asylum interview, uh, asylum officer who's trained in country conditions and law would meet with them. If they pass the credible fear interview, which 88% do, they then would be scheduled for uh, either a hearing with an asylum officer, and half of the cases were one at that stage where they would be released from detention, and that whole process took about two to four weeks. So if families were together, they were detained together, or because there was a limited number of beds, uh, according to an affidavit from from, uh, the the director of ICE in 2015, they only had 100 families in in custody. They would just release the people, Um, but they have an incentive to come back because they want to get asylum. 
Um, so they would be scheduled for an interview, they'd show up, and then they would be granted. The other half, if they were denied by the officer, would then go to a court where they would have a chance to present the case again. They would have a chance to find an attorney um, uh, uh, and to, to, to present their case and then uh, see whether their case would be granted at, at that time. But most of those people by then, by the hearing, were released. Not all, um, but definitely the families were. And and um, oh, okay, so 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 that's sort of how it happened before, where you you would sort of pass that initial screening by the border agent, then you'd get uh, like a trained uh, officer, you know, do this credible fear interview, where they would sort of um, analyze your claims more carefully, and then the next step after that would be to appear before a, a judge. Well, uh, an inter- well, or asylum, a, a real asylum office, an interview. Mm-hmm. So there, so and then the judge. So there were four stages. And um, how like often would – it seems that there was a lot of incentive to not miss that court date, right, if you're claiming asylum. Right. Yeah. Because you can't get a work permit until you get your status. Mm-hmm. So, of course. I mean I, – and, and again, 88% of the people were um, uh, appearing or, or, or 88% of the people passed an initial credible fear. Um, and so they, they wanted to proceed um, with, which means that they have a, a real, that they, they were in real danger and they want protection. Um, now, now, a second thing that's significant and a significant change is that Sessions is referring these people for criminal prosecution. It should be noted that the criminal prosecution is for a misdemeanor. The misdemeanor's name is called improper entry. If you read the statute, it is for people who have committed fraud or who have entered without status. Now, if you look at 8 U.S.C. Um, 1225, if anyone encounters a Border Patrol officer at the border or even outside of that and says, I'm afraid for my life or I want to apply for asylum, the the law says that that officer shall, it's a mandated form, put them on this track for an asylum hearing. They have to do that. Instead, what Sessions is doing is he's ignoring that mandate and instead taking them into the country and prosecuting them for improper entry. That statute does not apply to asylum seekers because it is legal to apply for asylum. It is legal to cross the border to apply for asylum. But the problem, then the question is, well, why are thousands of people pleading guilty? Because the, the ICE officers have taken away these kids from the parents and the parents are told you will you if you fight these charges which are wrongful you will be separated from your children for another three to four months which is the time that it takes for a trial to occur every single parent is saying no I need to be with my child they are pleading guilty and then they get back to the detention center and it turns out the government took their children away from them anyway so it is a racketeering um, uh, process to get all these criminal convictions to show people that these people are violating laws when in fact they are not. The lawbreaker here is the scheme um, uh, devised by Sessions and Nielsen to to cause asylum seekers be wrongfully prosecuted for a crime they did com- did not commit and wrongfully deny them the asylum hearing that they are due under our federal law. So they're pressuring them to plead guilty to this misdemeanor rather than applying for asylum, which presumably they would, this is the reason they're, they're, they're sort of crossing the border. Uh, you know, I, I yes, suppose maybe they, some are, are economic migrants, but the majority, it would seem, are likely. 88%, yeah. 88% have legitimate claim for asylum. 
Um, and and so it's it's this uh, the separating of children has the effect of um, coercing the adults into pleading guilty, uh, but then it's still unclear when they might be reunited with their kids. It's, they aren't being reunited, and then what's worse is they aren't getting this asylum hearing. There are credible claims from people from the lawyers at the border who are witnessing this, who are being told that um, the, uh, the, the asylum seekers are told that you will get your children back if you sign this waiver that gives up your asylum claim and, and agrees to uh, deportation. So they're forfeiting their opportunity to claim asylum with the promise that they will have their children reunited and it turns out that they aren't even, and then as the New York Times story showed that they are deporting people without their children even. So they are, they are systematically taking away the right for people to apply for asylum. They are taking away their kids to coerce them through that process. And then they don't even give the kids back. Maybe like I can sort of take a, a step back here. Like, why do the United States, why do any country have like asylum seeker policies, have asylum claims? What's the point? Well, it started during World War II. There's a famous ship uh, filled with Jewish refer- refugees coming from Germany and Austria. They were fleeing the Nazi regime. They the St. Louis, up. right? Correct. They showed up at the, at uh, actually at Cuba, but they were trying to get entry into the United States. FDR said, no, we can't. Um, and then they were sent back to Europe and half perished in, in, in the Holocaust and half were resettled by other countries that took them in. After that occurred, after the Holocaust, there was a worldwide response and outpouring um, of grief and, and uh, remorse and said, we have to have um, an agreement among the countries that we will take in refugees. Um, this was part of the work of the UN. Um, the United States signed on to this. Uh, Teddy Kennedy introduced legislation in 1980 um, so that Congress signed on to this so that we have been uh, um, processing and accepting refugees, which are people who are, who are, who are displaced from um, war and, um, and uh, natural events outside of the country. And we, t- we have agreed to take in asylum seekers, people who come, who are within our borders, who, who have shown that they have a targeted claim, a specific claim of harm. So it's not, if you're in a general civil war and just bad stuff is happening, you cannot get asylum. You can only get bad stuff or you can only get asylum if it's shown that someone directly has given you a death threat or someone directly has said, I'm going to harm you. Um, so only when there's that heightened evidentiary standard that the person is specifically targeted for harm, can they get asylum. And as um, individuals are, are fleeing gang violence and other forms of, of persecution in Central America, why don't more uh, claim asylum in Mexico and in the transit country? Well, that is um, a complicated question. One issue is that under, and this is, an, this is something called a firm resettlement bar, that um, you can be given asylum in the United States. However, if, if it is shown that you have firmly resettled, you will not be allowed to get asylum. Now, firmly a settlement is a legal term of art, and what it means is that have you been in a country where uh, you have received legal status to stay? And are you fully protected there? So I have a client, for instance, from Haiti who was persecuted there, went to Brazil, got refugee status there, but then was persecuted in Brazil. 
Um, so he's someone who actually can overcome the resettlement bar um, because he has, was persecuted both in his native country and in that third country that initially had offered him protection. Now, Mexico has not offered these individuals legal protection. So they are not, um, they are not foreclosed for claims for the firm resettlement bar. Sure. But on like an individual basis, if you're fleeing persecution in, in, you know, say Honduras, um, why not stop in, in Mexico city? Because Mexico doesn't offer asylum. Mexico has no asylum policy. It's not, it, they, they, they are not, they do not have the capacity uh, to provide um, uh, this legal protection for people. Obama actually poured in millions of dollars to try and build up Mexico's asylum process. So the the U.S. government has tried, that's what Obama did to try and stop this, hmm. uh, what, what he thought um, was, was too, too many asylum seekers. I, agree, I disagree with that policy goal, but he was trying to build up um, Mexico's infrastructure to be able to give people a, a full and fair hearing. But something to keep in mind, too, is that a lot of the people from Central America, they are fleeing gang violence, and those gangs are in full operation in Mexico, too. Um, now, if they were going through Canada, that would be a different issue because Canada is a society where they are fully safe and would be protected. Mexico does not have the protections at all. I mean, as we see in, I mean, in the elections, their politicians are being killed um, uh, by gang violence. People from Mexico are still getting asylum in our country uh, because of the gang uh, violence that, um, that they face there. Mm -hmm. um, I guess just to, to conclude – are there any sort of misperceptions about what's happening at the southern border that are being conveyed, you know, in the media or in general that deserve some correcting? Yes, I would say there are three. First, it is not illegal to ask for asylum. It is not illegal to cross a border without papers to ask for asylum. I think that's a very important point that people have to understand. Um, uh, and it's a very important point because Hannah Arendt said that um, uh, the Nazi Germany succeeded in its goals because it was able to convince the, the public that a certain group of people were criminals. And once people believe people are, are criminals, they look away and do not care about the level of, of treatment that they receive. And you see this now um, in, in, in her own discourse about how certain um, um, matters are justified. Um, the second misperception um, about this process is that Congress can stop it. Um, um, Trump can stop it. He can stop, can stop it today. Nielsen can stop it today. Sessions can stop it today. The federal prosecutors can stop it today. The ICE officers can stop it today. And Congress, right now there are 49 senators, they can stop it today. So there are many people who can act. And I hope that people spend time rather than pointing fingers at people who politically disagree with them to say, look, let's get this together. Let's just deal with this. Let's solve this problem. And then we can talk about disagreements about other issues. Um, and then the third issue um, is that detention for asylum seekers is not necessary, it is expensive, and that too should be uh, ended. Um, again, 2013, 
92% of asylum seekers were not in detention. We are detaining them now solely for deterrence purposes, which is a morally questionable um, project. It is actually an unlawful project, according to the Supreme Court, to use civil detention for that purpose. So I for, hope that people are compelled by this, based on the family separation, continue to be advocates and continue to realize that all asylum seekers should be um, uh, not in detention, um, and we should save that money the billions of dollars a year that are going to for-profit um, prisons to use for much better purposes that can help our country. Uh, well, Kari, thank you so much for your time. This was a helpful explanation of some really awful things that are happening in the United States right now. But I, I do appreciate you sort of helping to walk me through the laws and, and, and the policies that uh, guide this and, and are being violated right now, frankly. Uh, well, thank you so much for um, thank you for talking to me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kari and you know, just like a god awful situation. Um, if you're looking for something perhaps a little more uplifting content wise, do have a listen to my conversation with Tom Katana, a real hero and a doctor who serves in the Nuba region of, of Sudan. I posted that episode on Monday of this week. It's the episode prior to this one. And uh, it's uh, an inspirational one. You can learn that you know there are people who are trying to make a difference in this world, who are doing the right thing, who are heroes amid tragedies like like what we're seeing at the border right now. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.